at our final message in this series on biblical ministry before we launch into Romans next Sunday. And frankly, I can think of no better person to be the on-ramp to the on-ramp to Romans than Martin Luther. We end this morning in this three-part series with the summit. We've, we've called these messages the fundamentals of biblical ministry or the commitments of a, of a good minister, and they are biblical fidelity, biblical practice, and this morning a biblical gospel. They're all three connected like crests on a mountain range, each ascending uh, along the way to the very top. And today, the topic clearly is where the flag of Everest flies. You must have biblical fidelity in order to arrive at biblical practice. But both of those acclimate you to the atmosphere where God dwells, a, a biblical gospel. If you don't have the, uh, the scriptures as your sole authority and a commitment to building your life and your ministry on its convictions, then, then you'll inevitably end up polluting the gospel because it is so otherworldly. Have you not at times as a, as a believer like really pondered the gospel, what it says and, and what it has brought to you and not just been stupefied and dumbfounded by, by how otherworldly it is, how, how it, is, it is so contrary to our natural thinking and, and yet so, so glorious. The, the way of salvation is drawn from heaven's stream alone. And any tampering whatsoever by man's apparent wisdom or innovative practice will, will contaminate its purity. And we're looking at these three through the the lens of church history. We're starting with Scripture, since that's our authority, and then we look at an example from history that that illustrates that that truth. And so in each message, we we look at a person from the past that exemplifies the doctrine, and in some cases, like with John Rogers, dies for it. And then in the end, we consider how how to apply it to our own lives in in light of this, this example. So you have a Bible lesson an illustration from a faithful person's life, and then personal application for your own life. And, and we've looked at biblical fidelity uh, illustrated by John Wycliffe and biblical practice illustrated by John Rogers, and this morning, a biblical gospel illustrated by the life of, of Martin Luther. If you related these, these men to the five solas of the Reformation, Wycliffe would stand with sola scriptura emblazoned on his banner, Rogers would fly the flag of Solus Christus, and Luther would carry sola fide and sola gratia, one in each hand, waving them. If you know anything about Luther, all three of their hearts would beat with sola dea, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. So I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll see our, our final lesson. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul is giving some instructions about biblical ministry, and he provides the theme for this section that that I'll just remind you of in verse 6. Look, if you would, at verse 6 of 1 Timothy 4. Paul says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. So so there's the theme. Uh, It's the the headwaters, if you will, of, of, of what, what flows uh, between there and verse 16, which we'll wrap up, up today. Paul's concern for Timothy and for me and for you is that you would be a good minister or a good servant of Jesus Christ. And, and what follows are the instructions about how to do that. And, 
And he says a faithful minister alerts the flock to error in verse 6, and he focuses the flock on sound doctrine, the second half of verse 6. He turns them away from secondary matters in verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables. He disciplines himself unto godliness, verse 7 through 9. He works hard in, in, in verse 10, for it, is, for it is for this that we labor and strive. He proclaims God's message with authority in verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. He's a model to follow in verse 12. Let, let no one look down, but show yourself an example. He maintains biblical fidelity, verse 13, until I come give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He doesn't neglect his calling in verse 14. Don't neglect the spiritual gift within you. And he's given to biblical practice in verse 15. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them, that your, that your advancement or progress may be evident before all. And today we wrap up with Paul's closing admonition if you would, at verse 16. He says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who, who hear you. Now, Paul said, if you want to be a good minister, a good servant of Christ, you, your life should, should pursue, you should pursue a holy life and, and sound doctrine. And and now at the end, Paul makes a final call to Timothy to pay attention to both of those. A, a good minister is a man with an undivided focus and uncompromising perseverance. He's already laid out blow by blow uh, what a faithful minister is to be and to do. And now he says, make sure that you do it. Make sure you do what, what, what I've told you. And so this is like a closing admonition. It's like, it's like a, a one final uh, um, blow of the hammer to, to the nail before, before he puts his tools down and goes on to a, a, another topic. The word pay close attention here means to give your undivided attention to, to something, to take notice, to, to take heed. And he defines what we're to, to give our attention or attentiveness to. First of all, he says that your life, your life matches up with Christ. I think that's implied. And the second to your teaching. If you have King James, it says your doctrine. But it's, it's your teaching, that, that your teaching marries with Scripture. And, and implied with that teaching is what you believe. Because he says here, you'll not only save yourself, but you'll also save others. So it's, it's not only what you teach, but, but, but what you believe. Simply put, give your undivided focus to personal holiness and precise teaching, or precise doctrine, or precise beliefs, or accurate beliefs. John MacArthur said the whole of life boils down to those two things. Uh, that your life is a, is a model of Christ in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And you ask yourself the question, is Christ being formed in you? Not traditions or, or anything else, but, but is Christ being formed in you? Are you, are you becoming more like Christ? You pay close attention to that, and secondly, to, to your teaching. Is, is what you believe, is it free from error? In verse 6, is it void of extra-biblical ideas? Verse 7, is it rooted in the Scriptures that are publicly read and exhorted and, and taught? And notice that there's a result. He says that you'll save yourself and others. That's the salvation and sanctification of of God's people, or the perseverance of the, of the saints, as theologians call it. And that happens when we pay close attention to how we live and, 
and what we believe. And the two go together. You, you can't have a sanctified life with unsanctified doctrine. You can't expect to have a holy life and believe error or, or believe wrong things. Uh, Paul says it in this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You can't build a biblical church out of wood, hay, or stubble. Here, he says, without biblical models and without good teaching, you're, you're, you're not going to, to have that kind of life. And Martin Luther is an example of a man from church history who tried. He, he attempted to, 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 to pull these two things apart. He's also a testimony of what can happen when you get this verse right. I mean, Martin Luther is a man that probably everyone knows or has heard of, but, but few know his, his story. We've all been influenced by, by Luther here this morning. We're not Lutherans. We're, we're, we're Baptists. We're not even Protestants. We, we, were, we didn't come out of the Catholic Church. We weren't in it to begin with. But, but you've been influenced by, by Luther, from the hymns in the church that, that we sing to to even the founding of the country that, that we live in. The Protestant Reformation gave, gave, gave birth to, to this country and to Western civilization and all kinds of other things. And, but it's his clarity of the doctrine of justification that's influenced us the most. Luther was a man that was tormented in his conscience, but, but who also found the unspeakable joy of reconciliation with God. He was confused about several doctrines, including the Lord's Supper and baptism, but he continued to grow in his understanding once he turned to the Scriptures alone for his, for his authority. Luther paid very close attention to his life, to the point that it almost drove him and everybody else around him crazy. But he did it without a biblical gospel, and, and that was the problem. And if you get that wrong, no amount of effort is enough. No amount of labor, no, no amount of confession, no amount of, of monkery or whatever else that, that you can think of will be enough to salve your, your conscience and, and silence it from the dead works so that you might be able to, to serve God. And, and in the process, Luther became, uh, un, I think, an unintended target to begin with of the entire Catholic Church. He's credited for launching the Protestant Reformation in Germany with a single piece of paper and, and, and a mallet. But Luther illustrates a biblical gospel for us because of that primary doctrine of salvation by faith alone. What was later called sola fide, faith alone, is the very heart of the biblical gospel. If, if you had to say, where is the heartbeat of the, of the gospel? Of course, you could say all five of the, of the solas. But, but, but justification by, by faith alone is, is at the very center that's where Luther found peace after looking only at himself in the mirror of the law without the, the balm of Gilead, without, without Christ. And I mean, when you think about it, how God brings righteousness to you and I is a watershed doctrine. I mean, it is the fundamental of the, of the faith. I, I can hardly think of a, of a doctrine more significant because the Bible says that every one of us is unrighteous. There's none righteous, no, not one. And if righteousness is what we need in order to enter heaven, then how we obtain it is of paramount importance. This is not a secondary matter. I mean, this is, this is the issue. Justification by faith alone is at times, uh, I've heard it this way, oversimplified by this statement. It's just as though I never sinned. But it's way more than that. In spiritual matters, justification 
is the declaration of a sinner as righteous before God, even though they in themselves are not righteous. And this declaration is by judicial act of, of God, based solely on, upon the merits of Christ. And that comes to us only by faith, uh, without any mixture of or need for, for good works. I mean, sola fide says, on the basis of Christ's merits, God declares righteous those who come to Him by faith. And that righteousness is, is alien, meaning it comes from outside of the sinner. It comes from outside of, of you. We walk into to the courtroom unrighteous, without any righteousness, and we leave with the credit of righteousness, although it's not our own. It's an alien righteousness. It's a, it's a righteousness that comes to us from outside. And it's a passive righteousness. It, it's a righteousness that you have nothing to do with. It's a, it's a righteousness that, that comes entirely from God. You, it's, you're passive in it. it, it it's credited to you by, by God alone. You have nothing to do with it. And it's forensic, meaning it provides a judicial standing before God. You, you were once guilty, and, and now you are... You're declared righteous. You're declared righteous, even though you're not. And because of that, God treats you and me as righteous, even though we're not. You're not made righteous. You're declared righteous. And that's the real difference between the Roman position and Luther's. To justify uh, being declared right by God rather than being made righteous by God through the acts of the sacraments. That's that's the, the fundamental difference. See, the, the Roman Catholic Church that Luther was raised in, and the one that remains today, as we said, where we talk about these things, we're talking about the Roman system itself. There are, there are a number of, of Catholic people that you could talk to that would have no idea of, of the error, of the depths that are there. So we talk about the system itself, but it provides seven sacraments that are a necessary part of salvation. They... Uh, they assist you to become righteous. Their baptism and confirmation, Eucharist, also called the Mass, the penance, also called confession, probably the one that you think of the most, where the, the guy goes in the booth and talks to the priest. The, the anointing of sick, or extreme unction, holy orders, and, and matrimony. And, and each of these can have multiple requirements. For instance, penance or confession is one of the most commonly recognized, and, and it includes four elements, contrition, before you come in, confession to the priest whenever you get there, absolution by the priest, and then satisfaction, repentance. You go say five Hail Marys or whatever it is whenever you, whenever you leave. In Roman Catholic teaching, these sacraments are a means of grace to, to the receiver. And they're part of your justification before God. My church history professor from seminary used to give this oversimplification. He he said the Catholic Church is like a giant funnel. And in this, this Catholic Church, this giant funnel, God dumps His, His grace. There's no grace outside of the funnel. And, and on the bottom of the funnel, there, there are these seven spouts, like these, these seven sacraments. And there's no salvation outside of the, of the Roman Church, which is why even today, you and I are considered damned heretics according to Catholic dogma. They changed our name in Vatican II to separated brethren, but we still go to hell because we believe in salvation by faith alone. 
And there's no saving grace outside of the sacraments, no saving grace outside of the, of the church, and, and no saving grace without participating in the, in the sacraments. They're God's means of grace to the Catholic faithful. And then the priest is like a divine barista. Uh, he, he turns off and on the spigot. He, he administers the mass. He, he administers the baptism. He administers the, the confession. And without the church, you have no access to the grace of God. And without the sacrament, you have no means in order to receive that that grace. And without the priest, you have no mediator to stand between you and God and minister to it to you. That's that's an oversimplification of of Catholicism. One of the common errors that that people can make is is if you would say to a Catholic that that they believe in a works-based salvation. I mean, if you cook all of it down, I think that you can draw that conclusion. It's Christ plus something. But, but if you would say that to, to a Catholic priest, they, they would vehemently deny that. They would say that they're saved by having faith in Christ. Catholics believe faith is required for salvation. What they don't believe is it is faith alone that's required. Catholic dogma teaches that the effect of the sacrament comes ex opera operato, which is Latin for the fact of that it's just being administered. It has nothing to do with the personal holiness of the person administering it. And the sacraments propose the, uh, presuppose the faith of the partaker. So, so faith is required in addition to the, to the sacrament, which then works through the words and the ritual elements to nourish, it, nourish and strengthen and give expression to faith. But they are required. Listen to Catholic teaching about the sacraments. I'm quoting now. Though not every individual receives every sacrament... The sacraments as a whole are seen as a necessary means of salvation for the faithful, conferring each sacrament's particular grace. Instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church, they are efficacious signs of grace perceptible to the senses. Through them, divine life is bestowed upon us." What they also don't believe is that a person is declared righteous instantaneously by God based on the merits of Christ. They believe one becomes righteous through a process. You might think of it like progressive justification. We say uh, what the Bible teaches is justification happens at the moment of, of regeneration. At the moment that you receive Christ's righteousness, the moment that you're saved, you're justified by, by, by God. And then we understand after that, we grow in, in Christ's likeness. But your growth in Christ's likeness has nothing to do with, with your standing before God in the sense that if you died when you were uh, 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 partially sanctified, you would go to heaven. Glorification then happens at the, at the very end. Catholic dogma doesn't view, it, doesn't view it that way. It's progressive justification. Roman Catholic theology holds that God's righteousness is infused into the sinner when he or she partakes of the sacrament of baptism, which is why they do that with babies. And then that initial justification, as it's termed at baptism, is the beginning of the cleansing of sin and the entrance into the Christian life and then as an individual progresses in the Christian life, they, they continue to receive grace through the sacraments, and they continually become righteous. They're being made righteous through that process. It's also the reason for the Catholic tradition of purgatory. You understand Catholicism has three states, not just heaven and hell, but this middle state, this third state called purgatory. Here's Catholic dogma. 
purgatory, quote, is the condition, process, or place of purification or, or temporary punishment in which the souls of those who die in a state of grace are made ready for heaven. So in addition to believing in heaven and hell, Roman Catholicism teaches a third state before being admitted into heaven. Makes you fit for heaven. According to Roman Catholic doctrine, some souls are not sufficiently free from sin and its consequences to enter into the the state of heaven immediately. But but they're not so sinful that they're destined for hell. So so they're going to be united with God, but first they have to endure purgatory, the state of purification. And in purgatory, the soul, quotes, achieve the holiness necessary to enter into the joy of heaven, end quote. Boy, I want to preach right now. If Jesus Christ's holiness is not enough to get you into heaven, you couldn't spend ten eternities in purgatory to make you fit. Then once all of that takes place, there's the final judgment, and the individual's works will be evaluated at that time, and those who are righteous will be shown so, and that's the final justification. Aren't you glad the Bible teaches something altogether different from that? It teaches that salvation, the salvation of God, comes by grace alone, through the merits of Christ alone, and it is available to us through faith alone. Listen to this truth found in its most potent form in Romans 3, 21 through 26. I can hardly wait to preach this passage. But now... Apart from the the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Plus nothing. Martin Luther called this doctrine the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. And it also put him at odds with the Catholic Church. Luther taught this doctrine asserts the total exclusion of any other righteousness to justify the sinner other than the alien righteousness of Christ alone. Sola fide excludes even the sinner's own righteousness or sanctification or his new obedience in justification. That's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the Reformation. Let me tell you the story about how Luther came to realize that. Martin Luther didn't always believe that. In fact, he was first a lawyer and an Augustinian monk. He came came from the Catholic Church, like all the Reformers. That was the only church that there was. They came out of the the Catholic Church. But Luther was born November 10, 1483, and he died February 18, 1546. Luther was born to... Hans Luther, here's a picture of his father and his wife, or his mother, Margaret Luther, in Eisleben, Germany, which was at that point part of the Holy Roman Empire. 
He was baptized the next morning on the, the, feast of, the feast day of St. Martin of Tours. His family moved to Mansfield in 1484, where his father became the leaseholder of, of copper mines or smelters. And his father's great hope was that, that his son would become a lawyer. Luther was very intelligent, very industrious, and, and he hoped that he would become a lawyer and take care of mom and dad in their, in their old age. So his desire was for Luther to go to law school, and that's where he went. 1501, at the age of 17, he entered the University of Erfurt and received his master's degree. In 1505, he then enrolled in, in law school. But, but Martin had a problem did not believe himself to be right with, with God. He was tormented in his conscience. He knew his standing before God was, was suspect. And Catholicism uh, was greatly superstitious. And, and his view of, uh, was that God was out to get him. In Catholicism, there, there's like this hierarchy of approachability. I mean, God the Father is, is obviously at the top, and, and he's completely unapproachable. So nobody can get to him except through the Son. But the Son, Jesus, is, is like an impassioned judge. I mean, Luther saw Christ through the prevailing portrait of his day, which was a, a severe and terrible judge sitting upon a rainbow, consigning damned souls to hell. And so he can't be approached very easily. So, so in order to get to him, you go through the, the, the next rung, which is his mother, Mary. You get to the Son through, through Mary and if at times she was unavailable, then, then you could appeal to her mother, St. Saint, Saint Anne. And so Luther, either returning uh, home from school or heading back to school, was caught in a terrible storm. And with that idea of God, he, he attributed the, the storm that was coming upon him to, to God's judgment. Thought God was out to get him. So lightning strikes around him and and in great fear, he cries out, Help, St. Anne, I will become a monk. He makes a very rash vow. He, he vows to, to enter into the, the monastery, like some of you before salvation may have done, driving home drunk. Lord, if you just get me home, I'll never do this again. Luther, making good on his promise, left law school, much to the chagrin of, of his father. He sold his books, he, and he entered... Uh, the Augustinian friary in, in Erfurt in 1505. And Luther was a, a dedicated monk. Here's a German portrait of St. Anne and the Virgin Mary. Luther was a dedicated monk attempting to make himself right with God, but to no avail. He, he devotes himself to the monastic life, to fasts, to, to long hours of prayer and pilgrimages and frequent confessions. And, and Luther loved the confessional, the in, in, in the, the sacraments, the, the confession is the one sacrament that's supposed to be a blessing to the sinner because it would relieve your, your conscience. It was a, a tool to absolve the conscience of guilt. So Luther used it a lot. I mean, there were even helps uh, that, that Catholicism gave to help with introspection. So uh, the penitent would run through the seven deadly sins or the Ten Commandments and how, see how you stood in light of them. But in order to uh, receive absolution, every sin had to be confessed. I mean, it's transactional. No confession, no absolution. And so the confessor had to search their, their soul and examine their motives excruciatingly, which for somebody like Luther was excruciating. 
And he took this to the, to the fullest degree. He would go to the confessional, they said, sometimes up to six hours a day. You can imagine the priest that saw Luther coming. Six hours. He's confessing everything that, that comes to his mind. He, he's, I mean, think about this. Like you're sincere, You sincerely know that you're not right with God, and you believe this is what you must do in order to unburden your conscience, and you're going through the Ten Commandments. You get to the first one. How long are you going to be confessing at the first commandment? Six hours or longer? And there's Luther. His father confessor, uh, Johann von Staupitz, once told him, Look here, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come with something to forgive. Parasite, which is the murder of parents, or blasphemy or adultery, instead of all of these picadillos or picadillos. But to Luther, it wasn't whether they were big sins or little sins, but, but whether they needed to be confessed. Luther, even as an unsaved man, understood that there was something wrong in him that goes far beyond any particular list of offenses which can be numbered and confessed and then absolved. He understood his very nature was corrupt. Roland Bainton said that the penitential system fails because it is directed to particular lapses. Luther had come to perceive that the entire man is in need of forgiveness. You see, in the Catholic system, pardon is made contingent upon conditions. And Luther realized that they were unattainable. And that just drove him deeper into despair. Luther at one point found some level of help from von Staupitz, who was a Catholic mystic. A mystic, you, you might... Think of like the movement that unfortunately took evangelicalism for a while to let go and let God, you just yield your whole self to God kind of thing. And Luther tried this and found joy for a moment and then sank once again. And he thought, how could God who is holy and majestic and consuming become one with something as impure as a human? Stalvin told Luther he was just making it too difficult and he just needed to love God but this wasn't any help for Luther either, because how could anyone love God who is a consuming fire? Your God is angry and judging and, and damning you. How, how could he be loved? And All of that led Luther to wonder whether God was just at all, which is the inevitable end of a, of a works-based system. If God only rewards based on character and, and behavior, and you realize that you cannot produce that character or behavior, but God demands it, there's only two, two directions. You, you conclude that God is unjust for, for putting forth such a system, and, and you reject God, or you come to an end of yourself and you realize that I need grace, I need mercy. And all the seeking of righteousness outside of, of Christ only increased Luther's awareness of his own sinfulness. He, he would later remark, if anyone could have gained heaven as a monk, then, then I would have indeed been among them. Luther described this period of, of his life as one of deep spiritual despair. He said, quote, I lost touch with Christ, the Savior, the Comforter, and made him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. Von Staupitz, his superior, uh, concluded that Luther needed something to distract him, more, more work to do from his excessive introspection. So he ordered him to teach the Bible, which is kind of an odd thing when you think about it. But in God's providence, that's what the Lord used to save Luther. 
1507, he was ordained to the priesthood. In 1508, he began teaching and uh, he got his bachelor's degree. He was finally awarded the Doctor of Theology in 1512 and was received into the theological faculty at Wittenberg three days later. And then Luther spent the rest of his life there teaching. In here is a picture of young Luther whenever he entered into the, the monastery, Luther's cell. In 1510, Luther's monastery sent him on an errand to Rome, um, where he became further disillusioned with the Catholic system of merit. There, there was a disputation or dispute that had arisen in the Augustinian order that required a settlement from the Pope and Two brothers were sent to represent Erfurt, and Luther was one of them. And, and frankly, the superiors hoped that going to Rome would help Luther. Luther hoped that it would help him as, as well. He's still unsaved. He's still tormented. And um, all it did was lead him to see that the well of his religion was diseased. Rome was a special place. It, it still is a special place in Catholicism because there's no place on earth like it with such a treasure trove of merit. You see, besides the, the, the system of the sacraments and purgatory, there's also something in Catholicism called the treasury of merits, which is where the excess goodness of saints like Mary and, and others are, are pooled. In Catholicism, sins are accounted for on an individual level, but goodness is pooled in this this thing called the treasury of merit. So you have to confess your own sin. But there's a, if there's an excess goodness in, in the Son of God or in the Virgin Mary or, or in the saints, they have more than they need to get into heaven. That goodness is accounted for in heaven and it can be transferred to others uh, like, like currency. But only the church can make the transfer. And the Pope is the one who has the keys of Peter that is able to make that transfer. And that transfer of that kind of credit, uh, pulling down from this, this treasury of merits, is, is called an indulgence. That's the, the supposed power behind the, the, the indulgence. It's quite, quite frankly, it's a masterful system. It's, it's a damnable one, but, but masterful to keep people locked up in pursuing something that they can never attain. That, that's why uh, Catholics have no assurance of their salvation. And because God alone knew the extent of the guilt and, of the individual and then the length of time that that person had to stay in purgatory to be made right or perfect for, uh, holy enough for, for heaven, God's the only one who knows how long you're going to purgatory. You don't know how long you're going to be there. A million years, a thousand years, only God knows. But the church conveniently knows exactly how many years they can subtract from purgatory drawing down from this treasury of merits. And the Pope is the one who assigns how many years are related to which specific thing. Roland Bainton, for example, said Pope Leo X recognized his favorite church with a reduction of 4,000 years from purgatory. If you looked at the bones it contained. But there was no place like Rome to access this mystical merit. A single crypt of St. Callistus had some 40 popes buried, supposedly 76,000 martyrs in that church. In Rome, there was a piece of Moses' burning bush that you could look at. Rome had the chains of Paul. It had the scissors that um, 
Domitian used to clip the hair of St. John. The, the walls of Rome near the Apian Gate showed white spots left by the stones that, that were hurled at Peter that turned to snowballs whenever they reached there by some miraculous power. In another place in Rome, there was a coin paid by Judas for betraying the Lord and the 12-foot-long beam that Judas used to hang himself. But the most noted was the Scala Sancta, the Holy Stairs. It's in the Lateran Palace. This is a modern picture. These are, that, that's today, within our time. These are people today on those stairs. It's 28 stairs, supposedly those that once stood in front of Pilate's house, Pilate's judgment, that the Lord walked on to be condemned. And it said that whoever crawled up those stairs on their hands and knees and recited the, the Pater Noster, the, 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 Our Father, which is the Lord's Prayer, and kissed each step on the way up, could, when they reached the top, release one soul from purgatory, like total freedom from purgatory, one person. Rome even had the entire bodies of Peter and Paul that they dissected and divvied them up among the churches. Their heads were in the Lateran palace, and half of each of the body was deposited in their respective churches. And with such a significant collection, Luther felt it a privilege to make a trip to Rome when he was given the opportunity. In fact, he was overjoyed whenever he arrived. Uh, when he first saw Rome, it's said that he cried, Hail, Holy Rome! Roland Bainton said his intent was to see for himself and his relatives the enormous spiritual benefits available only here. And he only had one month to do it. So Luther was industrious. And he was going to celebrate the Mass and go to all the shrines that, that he could. But whenever Luther got to Rome, he found it was a cesspool. The prostitutes in Rome knew the clergy by name. And after the priests would go there together, then they would return to the confessional, hear each other's confession, and then absolve each other of their sin. And then go practice the Mass. During the Mass, the Italian clergy even mocked the sacrament. When Luther did it, they said, you're too slow, hurry up. But the turning point was when Luther came to these stairs. He, he went to the Holy Stairs himself to free his grandfather, Heine, and climbing up them on his hands and knees at each step, reciting the, the Lord's Prayer, praying, kissing the step. He reached the top, and as he looked back down over the top, he saw all the other people doing the same thing. And it's reported that Luther looked up into heaven and said, who knows whether it be true. Luther was said to have commented, I went to Rome with onions and I returned with garlic. <laughs> Even as an unsaved man, Luther knew no amount of papal cologne would cover the stench of the outhouse. The final straw came around 1516 when Johann Tetzel, a papal commissioner, sold indulgences. Long story of how he was commissioned and there was a German who purchased a a pulpit, and Tetzel was, was there partly because of him, and so some of the money from the indulgences, though, went to raise money to rebuild 
St. Peter's Basilica. Here's an actual indulgence from Tetzel. You can see the papal seal on it. Picture of the Basilica in 1630. The practice of indulgences actually began during the Crusades. They were, they were given to people who sacrificed their lives trying to open up the Holy Land. And, and then people who couldn't go could make a contribution. And then it turned into a moneymaker to help constructions and churches and monasteries. You probably heard John Tetzel's famous line. Tetzel would come into town with all the superstition, no Bible, no gospel, and preach about purgatory to people. Your grandmother, your grandfather is there. Your mother and father are there right now being tormented in the flame. And you can release them with a single coin. Can't you hear them crying to you right now? They're screaming out in the midst of the, of the flame. The ones who raised you, the ones who clothed you, the ones who fed you, and will you not, with a simple coin, help them? And then his famous line, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And Luther heard that and saw that and knew it wasn't right. On October 31st, 1517, Luther wrote to Albrecht to the Archbishop of Mainz and protested the sale of indulgences. He also posted it on the Wittenberg Castle door. Later became known as his 95 Thesis. It wasn't an attempt to split the church to begin with, but to debate. This is what you did. So you had a theological debate. And the Pope and Albrecht were in no mood to, to debate, especially on such a money-making issue. Luther doesn't fully understand how, how it's all linked together. So the Pope says nothing to begin, and some say he dismissed Luther as a, quote, drunk German who, when he sobers up, will change his mind. But he didn't respond. And unknowns to Luther and also the, the Pope, his students went and took Luther's thesis and printed it and distributed copies all over Germany. And so then Martin and the Pope both had a firestorm on their hands as the truth was, was read. But then something altogether different happened to, to Martin. His position as a teacher caused him to, to actually do exegesis actually study the scriptures in context. He had to teach the Psalms and Hebrews and Romans and Galatians. And it was here in his studies of the scriptures that Luther found the truth. His testimony is that he came to faith in 1519. What he understood up to that point, it's probably like you, you can go back, you know there's a moment where the light came on, but the Lord is working. He first found a, a different view of Christ as he studied the Psalms. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance or the words of my groaning. It was said there he found Christ not as one sitting upon a rainbow, damning poor sinners, but one who had been forsaken by God. Very much the same way that Luther felt. He felt that he was forsaken by God and in a desperate condition. And the difference was Luther deserved that as a sinner, but, but Christ chose to be rejected by, by God for sinners like, like Martin. And that opened up an entire new view of, of God to Luther. God was no less terrifying, but, but he was also merciful. And it was on the cross that his wrath and mercy met. The second, as significant or more so, was Luther when he studied Romans and Galatians from the Greek. There he learned the word for justice also carries another meaning, which is justification. Here's Luther's own words. 
He said, I had lectured in the university on St. Paul's epistles to the Romans and to the Galatians. And I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. A single word in chapter 1 stood in my way. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. For I hated the word righteousness, the righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all my teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, that which God is righteous and He punishes the unrighteous sinner. So when Luther heard the, read the words that you and I uh, rejoice in, the righteousness of God, Luther heard judgment, God being, being just. Luther said, I, I thought I lived as a monk without reproach. I, I felt that I was a sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed, disturbed conscience. And I could not believe that that God was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness uh, of God, or the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmured greatly. I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Luther, when he heard the gospel, he heard threats, not good news. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately on the, upon Paul, that, that place most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. And at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, exegesis, Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And there a totally other face of the entire Scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through Scripture from memory and I found in other terms an analogy. As the work of God, that is what God does in us. The power of God with which He makes us wise. The strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus this place in Paul was for me truly the gate of paradise. And that changed Luther's life and his ministry. It also brought an obvious divergence from the Catholic Church and its system of merits. After Luther comes to Christ, he begins to preach what he, what he learned. Luther's writings begins to circulate widely, and in 1519, the, the Pope demanded an explanation, and Luther wrote a summary of his thesis for the Pope, and then in 1520, he enters a Disputation, which is a debate in Leipzig with Johann Eck, and he goes into the debate just armed to, to the hilt. Steve Lawson said he, he entered with unparalleled boldness. He declared the scriptures alone are to be trusted. 
the popes and councils have often erred, that, that a layman, here's where he made his famous quote, a layman armed with the scripture knows more than the pope. No one has ever had the audacity or the guts to say those kinds of things. In the same year, 1520, uh, Luther writes his three famous treatises, uh, an address to the German, uh, the uh, Christian nation of German nobility, where he sets up the priesthood of the believer. Then the Babylonian captivity of the church, where Luther takes on the, the Roman church and the mass and its idolatry. And then finally, the freedom of the Christian man, where he declares the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The result of all three of those documents is the Pope issues a papal bull, Leo, warning Luther that he risked excommunication unless he recanted 41 sentences. He has 60 days to do, do it. A lot of back and forth between Luther and the Pope, but he finally gets this exurge domini, this papal edict. And Luther, by this time, understands that the Pope is, is, is in on it, and the whole system is corrupt. And so he responds to a friend, the Pope doesn't condemn me, but Christ himself, because these are his teachings. And so on December the 10th in 1520, it's issued in June, it takes a while to get to Luther. Luther takes some of his university students, and, and he gathers at one of Wittenberg's gates, and they're... There's a fire that's there, and Luther publicly burns the Pope's papal bull, declaring he took no orders from Rome, but only Christ. And as a consequence, Luther was excommunicated January 3rd, 1521. Facing exile, he is summoned to the, the Diet of Worms in 1521 to give an account. Luther agrees to go after Frederick of... Saxony preserves supposed safe passage. Luther, on his way there, he preaches from, from town to town. He, on his way to the, to the deity, he preaches the doctrine of justification all the way there. It's conducted by the emperor Charles V, who is presiding when Luther couldn't get any relief from, from the Catholic Church or them to engage, he appeals to Caesar. Caesar is the Holy Roman Emperor. And so he's here at the, the Diet of Worms, and it's an ominous scene, quite frankly. I don't know that we can grasp how significant of a moment this, this is or how difficult it, it would be. I've heard people say it would be like appearing before like an average pastor, appearing before the, the president and the senate and the Supreme Court all at the same time. The highest of all ecclesiastical and governmental authorities are there. It's a room full of people. It's not just one day. It, it's, it's, it's over a period of time. And in the middle of the room is a table with Luther's books and writings. And on one side of the table stands Luther. On the other side is the, the emperor and, and John Eck as the prosecutor. Luther is asked if these are his works on the table and if he'll recant them and... Luther realizes the gravity and asks for the next day to, to answer. And the next day, the exact same scene, John X speaking on behalf of the, the empire and Rome presents Luther with a copy of his writings laid out on the table and he asks him two questions. Are these your works and will you revoke them? Will you recant? And Luther, after the night, confirms that he was the author. First question. 
And then he also agrees that some of his writings are, are harsh, the parts that come from him. He would gladly acknowledge anything that came from him as error. But the other parts, the parts that particularly contain Scripture, he does not revoke. And he gave his famous response. Unless I'm convinced by Scripture or clear reasoning that I'm in error, for popes and councils have often erred and contradicted themselves, I cannot recant. For I am subject to the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. And it is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. And Luther is condemned as a heretic by Charles V. And he's given 21 days to get his affairs in order. Meaning that he's going to die. There's back and forth. Next five days, private conferences. That was the final declaration. Frederick III, Elector of Saxony, uh, knows what's going to happen to Luther if he returns. So Luther is kidnapped by friends. And he is taken and escorted to the security of Wartburg Castle, where he stays there incognito for about 11 months. And there he translates his Bible. He translated the Greek New Testament into German. It's released September 24, 1522, the, the New Testament part. Here's a picture of the little room where Luther was at. The final Bible wasn't finished until 1434. But at that point, whenever the, the Bible was translated into German, just like in England, the Reformation was uncontainable at that point. Steve Lawson said once you put a Bible into people's hands and they can read for themselves, there was no stopping the Reformation. No going back after you read the Bible. Luther uh, married Katie out of love and also in spite, he said, despite the Pope, she was a nun, so he married her. <laughs> Luther later penned many things, including hymns and books. His most famous writing was Bondage of the Will, which is a response to Erasmus the Humanist. It's hilarious of how all of that transpired. Erasmus was the the intellect of the day, and Luther doesn't respond immediately. Erasmus is not a saved man. He writes on the freedom of the will. Luther doesn't respond immediately. They think that Erasmus has bested Luther, and Luther finally writes bondage of the will and makes this hilarious introduction explaining that he didn't respond quickly because Erasmus's argument was so poor, he was waiting for a better one from such a learned man. 1527 is known as the dark year in Luther's life. The Black Plague raged in, in Europe, and Luther had to decide to flee or to help others and stay and preach the gospel. He stays, even opens his home as a hospital with dying people. He preached over 200 sermons in that one year alone. Lawson said he was so burdened during that year for the ministry that what was going on in caring for the sick and the weight of the Reformation, he would collapse several times in various settings, including the dinner table, and he had to be carried to his chambers. And it was during that excruciating burden that Luther, from the depths of his soul, would, would write, A mighty fortress is our God. The Augsburg Confession, which set forth the the Reformation doctrines in Germany, 1530. 
But Luther's health deteriorates, and he dies in 1546. You've probably heard of the leader of the Moravians, um, Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, he's count. You probably heard his statement. He wanted to preach the gospel and die and be forgotten. That's a wonderful attitude. Quite frankly, it's one that I, that I hope I have. Luther had another perspective that fit his personality. When he died at 62 years of age, he wrote his final words, his last will and testament, and he said this in it. I am known in heaven, I am known on the earth, and I am also known in hell. As if to say he had struck such a blow to the enemy that he was known by name. One historian records his last moments. Luther was asked by his friend, Justice Jonas, Do you want to die standing firm on Christ and the doctrine that you have taught? And Luther emphatically answered, Yes. Two tests for what a person believes. One is how they live, and the other is how they die. Luther's last words were, quote, We are beggars. This is true. And he died in Eisleben in February 1546 in the sight of where he was baptized as an infant. Luther's body was carried back to Wittenberg with pomp and circumstance, and he was buried under his pulpit. And what God began with Luther and what God had already started in England and other places continues today. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And when I look at these men... And like Luther, say, I want to live such a life. A life that as far as glory is concerned, uh, I am like Zinzendorf. I want to preach the gospel, die and be forgotten as far as glory is concerned. I want no glory. But as far as a life of usefulness is concerned, I want to be well known in hell. We need to be reminded of these things. I think we are entering a period of time in the Western church like no other. And we don't know how to suffer. We do in sickness and otherwise, but this kind of suffering that the reformers teach us. And so we look back to men like Luther and Rogers and, and, and Tyndale and others and see how to do it well. And I hope you want to live that kind of life. If you do, It's a life that's a faithful minister. It starts by paying close attention to your life and doctrine, particularly to what you believe, particularly to what you believe about salvation. Does it come by faith alone or something that you produce? Hear the same words of Paul that Luther heard, the righteous are made so by faith. And if you've never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, May today be the day that that you lay down your introspection and your defiled conscience and your inflamed conscience and your self-atonement and whatever else you're looking for, whatever else you're depending upon, and may you look to Christ. You go into the courtroom guilty and you leave with the declaration of righteousness because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, full and free because of him. Isn't that a wonderful isn't that wonderful news
Let's pray. Father, I pray everyone who's under the sound of my voice has trusted Christ in that same way, and if they haven't, that they would do so today. Father, I pray for for any saint here this morning that might be struggling. They would be reminded, as Luther was, of Psalm 22, that you were forsaken, felt deserted. You did that willingly for them, so you understand. Lord, I pray for any Christian this morning that is struggling with sin, that you would remind them that they have been forgiven full and free. And then I pray that they would turn to you and ask to be used and then get up and work until you come. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.